We are so thankful you decided to take time out of your day to listen to this sermon. Central to all of our services is gospel-centered teaching led by our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff Warren. Together, we are a church that seeks to follow Jesus every day, and we hope you are drawn closer to Christ as a result of this message. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, again we come to you and we give you thanks uh, for the rich, rich blessing that is music and the opportunity we have to sing and to play instruments and to make noise, Lord God, but make noise in a way that glorifies you, worships you, and that does something to our hearts that stirs us to worship and praise. And so we give you thanks for the beautiful gift that is music that is truly from you. And so, Lord God, we pray that as we open your word, another gift from you, your revelation to us, Lord God, that we would open our eyes, open our ears, and that you would open up our hearts to see and to hear what you have for us today. We love you. It's in your son's name. Amen. Good morning again. Good to be here on this Labor Day weekend, as we said. Uh, I used to work when I was in seminary. I used to work at a place called the UPS store. How many of you have shipped anything out of the UPS store? Good for you. If you go to FedEx, that's wrong. You're a sinner. (laughs) I'm just kidding. We're all sinners. It's okay. No, UPS store. Worked there all through seminary. Worked with other uh, seminary students. And um, it was fantastic. Great place to work. My, My boss, the guy that owned the franchise store, was just fantastic. His name was Mike. His wife was very involved. And they really were kind of my mom and dad while I was in seminary because I was so far from my parents. And so Mike was, was very particular about how he wanted things done, which was great. He gave us at the end of the day and at the beginning of the day, we had a, an opening checklist for the morning and then a closing checklist at the end of the day to make sure we did everything the right way, the way we were supposed to do it, to make sure everything was secure and to make sure that everything was deposited well and everything was just right. Well, because we were all in our 20s, after about two times of using the closing checklist, we were like, I got this, and we didn't use the closing checklist anymore. But once in a while, we'd come in to work in the afternoon, and our boss would say, did you know you left the gate open last night? Or did you know you didn't lock this up? Or did you know that you didn't do this? And we'd say, oh, Mike, we're so sorry, we forgot. And he's like, well, if you'd use the closing checklist, that would not be a problem. Again, like my parents, right? And so one night, I closed up with a buddy of mine. I think it was actually the guy that did mine and Kim's wedding. And I went home, and I went to sleep, and I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was convinced that I had forgotten to close the gate. The gate closed off the cash registers from the rest of the store because mailbox owners could come in and get their mail any time of day. And so um, I woke up at 3 a.m. I was convinced I left it open. I was like, I've got to go back up there and close that. So I put on my clothes, drove up to the store at 3 a.m., opened up the door, went in. Sure enough, the gate was locked. It was all fine, and I went back home. But you know what has not changed since that time? I still wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm still worried about finances. I'm still worried about money. I'm still worried about whether or not I have the proverbial gate closed on my finances. And if you're like me, you probably do the same at different points in your life. You have woken up worried about whether or not you're going to have enough money, to get you through the month, you're going to be able to pay for college, you're going to be able to pay off debt, whether or not you're going to have enough money to to cover expenses, mortgage, whatever. If you're like me, money worries you. And so it's into this this week that we speak about how we might live out God's better story for our finances, how we might have an approach, a, a checklist, if you will, about aligning our heart 
not with, with what, just what God says about money, but with what God says about our entire lives and seeing that money is a part of that. Our finances are a part of this. And I think that if we use the checklist we're gonna walk through today, I think it'll alleviate some of the anxiety that we have in regard to money. It's not gonna solve all your money problems. I wouldn't promise that. If I did, I'd write a book. But we're gonna be in Matthew chapter six today, verse 19. And, and I think this is a great passage because it comes right before the passage we were going, uh, we, we talked about last week, which was about worry and anxiety, right? So I think it's appropriate that they be together. So let's look at three steps that we can take to securing God's greater story for our finances, right? The first step is this. You need to lock your safe. You need to lock your safe. So in the ancient world, there weren't really a lot of great places to store your valuables. Banks were in their infancy, and even if you did go to a bank, they weren't very trustworthy. There wasn't like an FDIC for you to, to have insurance, right? Also, valuables were uh, stored, uh, were material valuables, right? So it wasn't like there were electronic numbers on a screen. If you had $5, you had $5. And if you lost that $5, you weren't getting that $5 back. And so what people would do in this world of financial insecurity, they would put their money into, into valuable items like fabrics, dyed cloth, put into gold, silver, uh, precious jewels, things like that. Or they would store it, they would bury it in the floor of their house, either in a dirt floor or they'd cover over it with stone, or, and this is kind of the weirdest of all, they would bury it in the walls of their house, which sounds strange, but then you realize that the safe in your house is also in the wall, so that's not all that strange, I guess, when you think about it. But that's what they would do. That's how they would protect their finances. And it's into this world of financial insecurity that Jesus says the words that he says in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So one of the things that Jesus is saying here is that there are threats to our valuables when they're stored like this. And Jesus talks about some of them. If you've put all your money in cloth and dyed fabric, guess what one of your dangers is? Moths. They'll eat the fabric. And all of a sudden, it's not worth anything anymore. The word for rust here is actually probably consumption. And it's probably not rust, and so the NIV actually translates it consumption or to be chewed up. Uh, we're probably not talking about rust, because gold doesn't rust. It's a, it's a noble metal, it doesn't rust. But there are animals that will break into places and they will chew up and chew on things that you find to be valuable. So all of a sudden, the chests that you put your gold into, they're chewed up and all that. So that may be what Jesus is talking about here. But regardless, you also have thieves that break in and steal. And that word break in literally is translated dig in. And when you understand how people stored their valuables, they buried them or they stored them in a wall, digging in makes a lot of sense, right? Now, we have gotten more sophisticated over the years with our finances, with our banks. But you know what's still true? No matter how sophisticated we get in our storage of money, they're still uh, exposed, they're still vulnerable to decay, to entropy, to devaluation, right? They're still vulnerable to it. You can still have it stolen, still have inflation, deflation, all that stuff takes place. Inflation undermines the value of the money of you, that you have. If you go home and put every dollar you have in your mattress, guess what happens? It will lose value over time because of inflation. We have cars, the moment you drive them off the lot, they depreciate in value. Real estate rises and falls, and stocks are often unreliable. And if you say to me, well, Travis, there are some stocks that are very reliable. Yes, but not forever. I give you Blockbuster. 
Money is unreliable. And on top of that, theft has gotten even more sophisticated. We put all our money into uh, numbers on a screen, and guess what? Somebody can hack in and take every dime that you have just by changing digits in a computer. Isn't that crazy? Theft has gotten more sophisticated. So even though the, the, the containers we put our money in is more sophisticated, the theft and the entropy continues to follow them everywhere that we go. Everywhere they go. So into this, Jesus has an alternate financial security plan. Look at verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus tells us to be wise. Put your money, put your gold, put your treasure, put what you value, not in things that can be broken into, but in things that can't be assaulted, things that can't be broken into and stolen, things that can't uh, be subject to entropy and decay and to inflation and all of that. And there's only one place that offers that. It's heaven. It's the place where God resides. And the reason why thieves don't break in and steal is because God is there. The reason why things don't decay there is because God is there. God offers us security. That's the only place we can find that. And it's based on God's grace. In our economic system here, we get our finances, we get our resources by working hard and earning it. Most of us, that's how it come about. Occasionally somebody gets lucky, they're born into the right family, or occasionally somebody gets lucky, they hit the lottery. But for the most part, you work hard and you earn it. But in God's economy, that's not how riches work. It is given solely based on God's grace. We all get what we don't deserve because we all deserve punishment. But God gives us gracious, gracious kindness and love. And this is why the financial security that God offers us is different than the world's financial security. The means through which we get it is by earning financial security, right? The means by which we get our finances is by earning it. So that means that other people can take it from us. But the means by which we get God's security is through his grace, which means he's in charge of keeping it safe. So we've talked about this. You've probably heard these verses numerous times in your life if you've been a part of church. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself one question? Why does God care about my money? I mean, seriously, why does God care about our money? He doesn't need it. He can do everything he wants to do. His mission, his plan, his kingdom promises on earth. Guess what? He can do everything he needs to do without a dime from any one of us. So why does he care about our money? Well, it has something to do with our heart. It has something to do with what it does to us. Look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We have this quality about us. It's really a unique quality about human beings. We get really, really attached to things. Really, really, really attached to things. We get really attached to people. We love our mom, we love our dad, we love our kids, we love our grandparents, crazy uncles, friends, other family members, coworkers. We get attached to them. And when they leave, we get sad. We get attached to celebrities. There's certain celebrities that we really, really love, right? Whether we have any affiliation with them at all, we still really like them, right? There's also some celebrities that we don't like. I give you the Kardashians. One day I'm gonna stop beating up on them, but it's not gonna be today. We also have athletes that we really love. And mostly that's just tied to the fact that, did you wear the jersey of the team that I root for? Yes. Oh, now you play for the Mets? I hate you. We get attached to people. We get attached to places. You may have grown up 
in an absolute dump, but for some reason that you can't explain, there's still a fondness that you have for it. Wherever you lay your head down at night, wherever home is for you, you're attached to it. Home is where the heart is. We get attached to vacation spots. Kids, if you're wondering why you've gone to the same campsite for the last nine years, it's because mom or dad or both, somehow they're connected to that one place. So if you want to know how to go to a different place, get them attached to something else. A little secret for you there. We get attached to things, cars, clothes, baseball cards. Get attached to stuffed animals, right? I got a stuffed dog in 1983. His name's Poochie. And for the life of me, I'm hurt for some reason that I can't explain that my daughter doesn't want to play with that stuffed animal. I'm like, he's awesome. Why don't you love Poochie? Because he was made in 1983 and he's dingy and gross. Now follow my train of thought here. If we get really attached to things, and Jesus says that whatever you treasure the most, money, fame, status, family, friends, time, energy, whatever it is, you'll attach your heart to it. You can't help it. It's inevitable. Whatever you value the most, your heart will immediately cling to it. Can't help it. As your, heart, as, as your treasure goes, so goes your heart. It's like a train, just right together, right? Which means that whatever I value the most, I'll find my identity in it, I'll find my soul in it, and ultimately, if it runs totally off the rails, I'll find my salvation in it. And so as my treasure goes, so goes my heart. So when you have that in mind, go back and read verses 19 to 20, but let's not read them with treasure. Let's replace the word treasure with heart. Look at what it says. Do not store up your heart on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up your heart in heaven where neither rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. When you put your hope and your faith and your trust in material things, your heart, your soul, your identity, the core of your being will be placed there as well. And those things are vulnerable. They die, they decompose, they lose value, eventually they leave. And when those things happen, when we lose those things, guess what you lose? Yourself. You lose your heart. You lose who you are. But if you put your heart toward God and the blessing and the hope that he offers us in Christ and his person and work, you can't lose because it's secure. You can't lose yourself because your riches are secure. They can't be assailed because they're with God in heaven. This is how you lock the safe. Our hearts cannot decay because they're protected by the blood of Christ. Our hearts can't be stolen because they're sealed by the spirit of God when he comes and lives inside of us. Your hearts can't die because Jesus Christ has triumphed over death. You can't lose yourself if yourself is placed in Christ. Your finances are a great bigger deal than you realize because they become your heart. We have to lock up our treasure, our heart, in a safe that cannot be assaulted because your heart gets so attached to things so easily. And those things that you attach it to, they're vulnerable. And if they can be taken from us, if they can leave, if they can die, if they can lose value, then guess what? We can, as a person, have that happen to us as well. And this is why it's so important that you give your life to Christ. It's why it is so important that you put your faith and trust in what he did for you, that he died on the cross for your sins and for mine. Because our heart chases after so many different things, but God wants it for himself. 
Not just because he desires your, your worship, he does. Not just because he demands your allegiance, he does. But he wants your heart because he wants to rescue it. He wants to save it from entropy, from decay, from death, from theft, from abuse. He wants to protect it and he wants to put it in his heavenly vault where nobody can get it and be treasured forever there. But after you've given your life to him, like any good investment, you've got to keep pouring into that relationship. You've got to keep pouring into that relationship. Spend time with him. Turn your thoughts to him. Right? There's a quote uh, that Vera Wang has. I think it's on the screen. Yes? She says, the key is falling in love with something, anything. If your heart is attached to it, then your mind will be attached to it as well. She's a fashion designer, but she's onto something here. The only thing she's wrong about is attaching your heart to anything. That's not true. Attach your heart to Christ and watch your thoughts and your, your mind turn to him regularly. Every activity, your whole life, your whole life discipleship needs to be pursuing after Jesus Christ. Everything about you must be focused on him. And this takes work at first. It's hard. It feels robotic. You're like, okay, I used to do this normally, but now I'm going to think about what God wants me to do. I get it. But you know what? It's worth it. Because after some time, the spirit will begin to transform your heart, transform your mind, and you'll start doing it without really even thinking about it. So we've got to lock the safe because your heart is valuable. So you've got to put it in a safe that no one can get to. And that's by giving your life to Christ and by pouring into that relationship with Christ. But after you've done that, the next step in the checklist is to turn on the lights. Turn on the lights. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So this is a weird metaphor. It's very strange. Uh, we debate about what it means, but it's actually very common in antiquity. It's a common uh, metaphor in antiquity. In some uses of it in literature, the idea is the eye is the lamp of the body and it's illuminating the person inside. So what a person looks at, what a person sees, what they invest in, that either illuminates their body or it darkens them and makes them more evil. In other instances, it's the reverse. The eye is the lamp of the body and whatever light or darkness is stored up in a person, that's gonna pour forth into the world around them. So which is it? Well, the problem is you see both uses of it in antiquity and you also see both uses of it in Matthew. So I'm gonna play it safe and go with a both and. I think it's a both and. I think that's what's happening here. It's a both and, right? So I prefer to think of the lamp more like a window. And I think if this were written today, I think it would say your eye is like a window. And you think about how a window works. If it's bright outside like it is right now, light pours forth into a dark room. But if it's dark outside, through a window, light pours out into the darkness. So the eye works as a lamp or a window of the body. And so it's this metaphor that Jesus makes the comparison. He says, 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus makes a comparison between a good eye and a bad eye. What's a good eye and what's a bad eye and what's the difference? Well, a good eye, the word doesn't actually mean good. It's not the typical word for good. It means to be singular, to be focused, to be devoted, committed. And in some Jewish contexts, the word actually means to be generous, to be generous. So if that's what that means, then the bad eye kind of makes sense as well, right? Especially in the context of the financial piece here. The bad eye is one that is 
looking around. It's not focused on anything. It's, it's scattered. It's looking. It's looking at what he has and what she has and what they have and why don't I have that and why don't I have this and why don't I have this and it's jealousy and it's greed and it's envy. It's not focused. It's not generous. It's stingy and greedy. And this all makes a whole lot of sense when you think about the next passage. Because in the next passage, Jesus talks about anxiety and worry. And the word for anxiety in the next passage literally means to be divided, to be divided. And Jesus calls us, what's the solution for being divided in that passage? Seek first the kingdom of God. Be singular, be focused. So what does all this mean? What does all this mean? Well, I think when you put all this together, I think it's a calling from Jesus for us to be generous, for us to be generous. Jesus wants us to stop being distracted by jealousy, by greed, and by stinginess. And can we all admit that we're probably a little bit more greedy, probably a little bit more jealous, and probably a little bit more stingy than we think we are? I know I am. I don't want to admit it about myself. But, and I've heard Jeff say this before, and I think he's right. I've never sat in like an accountability group with somebody where they're like, man, I'm just really struggling with greed right now. So greedy. Nobody wants to admit that about themselves. It's always a danger for us because we get attached to things, right? And sometimes we get attached to money. Jesus wants us to not be fractured people, but to be whole people. And whole people are generous people. And they're generous because they're seeking the kingdom in everything they do. Look at verse 633. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Look, if I'm seeking first the kingdom, I know God's going to take care of me, so I don't need to look around. I don't need to look around. You know what I love about this church? I love this church because historically I feel like we are very generous as a group, as a body of believers. I'm going to share some numbers with you. If you're a numbers person, you'll like this. If you don't, just hang out for a little bit. We'll come back and get you in a little. Over the last 10 years or so, giving in our church has increased by $1.4 million over the last 10 years or so, which is incredible. Incredible. Last year was our third highest giving year ever in the history of our church. If you add in the 300 plus thousand dollars we gave to give up to give, where we had the New Testament translated into a language that had never been translated before, it becomes the second highest giving year we've ever had. I'm really proud of this church. I feel like it's a generous church. And I'm proud not just of the fact that it is generous, but how that generosity comes about. It's not one generation carrying the load. You need to hear this. It's not one group of people paying all the bills. It's actually spread out pretty evenly across the generations. 65 and older, you give about 28% of the budget. 65 and older. 50 to 65-year-olds, another 28%. And then 35 to 50, 22%. It's incredible. It's all spread out. And before we, we, we harp on our young adults in that category, those under the age of 35 give $1 million dollars which is not anything to sneeze at. That's incredible. That's incredible, the generosity of our people here. So I say all that to say, praise God. Praise God. I'm excited. And again, not just because of the amount of money. That's not what's important. What's amazing is that I sit in meetings at this church every single week And we ask questions like, hey, what can we do to reach people for the gospel? What can we do to minister better? What can we do? And the question never comes up, well, can we afford that? 
The question, the answer to that question, if it ever does come up, is don't worry about it, we'll find it. It's a generous church. But that doesn't mean that there are not some places where we can challenge ourselves. One of the numbers that, that might be a little challenging and concerning is that even though our giving amount has gone up, the number of givers has gone down. So we need to ask ourselves, maybe rather than asking ourselves, maybe you need to ask yourself, am I pursuing the kingdom of God singularly with my finances? Am I pursuing the kingdom of God singularly with my finances? Because there's a selfish part of me, there's the bad eye, right? The one that's jealous and stingy that wants to hold on to my resources. We're getting a narrative from the world around us that's telling us, hey, when you get a little bit of money, you should spend it on yourself. And, or pay down some debts, because we all got those. Or save some. It might be, there might be a rainy day later. You want to hold on to that. You, the government needs some money. You need to pay your taxes. And then if you've got anything left over, maybe drop a little bit in the plate so you feel good about yourself. The world's generosity that it offers us, the one that it encourages us to, to, to commit to, is a generosity that, that makes us feel good about ourselves. And that's not whole life generosity. That's token generosity. Let's lay your head down at night and try to sleep better generosity. But it's not the generosity that Jesus calls us to. He calls us to a higher form of generosity. And it's one based on faith and trusting him to provide. And I think this is why he talks about anxiety and worry in the very next passage. Because we have it quite a bit when we begin to be generous. Look, no matter how much you have, it will never be enough never be enough to cover all your desires, to cover all your wants. It'll never be enough. You'll always want or desire more. And because of that, and because our hearts attach to so many things, and often it attaches to money because money can get us the other things that we love, Jesus wants to give us an alternative plan. He wants to move generosity to the front of the list, not to the back of it. And do you know why Jesus wants us to be generous? Not just for our hearts, although we've talked about that. He wants us to be generous because he's generous. God is a generous God. And so when we who are Christians go through our lives with bad eyes, being stingy, being jealous, and being envious, you know what we tell the world about God? He's envious, he's stingy, and he's greedy. But when we approach the world around us with kindness, with generosity, we show the world that our God is a generous God. And if you question God's generosity in your life, he gave his son, his most precious treasure for you and for me. He gives us many other blessings besides that, but he doesn't need to because that one was the greatest of all. So before you pay your bills, your debts, be generous. Invest in the kingdom. Invest in the kingdom first. So how do you do that? How do you do that practically, Travis? Well, the first thing I would say you need to do is you need to pray. It's probably a great place to start. You need to pray. You need to lay out your budget in front of the Lord, lay out your check stub or your bank statement in front of the Lord and say, Lord, this is what I have. And I'm uncomfortable, but I want you to have this. I'm scared, but I want you to have this. I want you to tell me what to do with this. I also want to confess to you that my heart tends to run to these things. My treasure, these are my treasures, and this is where I tend to put my heart, but I want you to lock it up, and I want you to turn on the lights in my life so that the generosity goes forth from my life and brightens the world around me. And then the next thing you do is you give something, and you start giving something regularly, whether it's to friends, to coworkers, 
should give to the church. If the church is the kingdom of God represented on earth, it's appropriate to give to the church. It's not inappropriate. It's not inappropriate to, to ask that of, from the church. If you're going to have generous hearts to the kingdom, giving to the church, giving to your local church is a good thing to do. So after you've given something, start looking at your budget and start looking at a regular percentage of your, giving, of your, of your money that can go towards giving, that can go towards generosity. Maybe you, maybe you put a line in your budget called kingdom building. And this, is, this is where you build into the world around you. And you're like, I have devoted money every month that goes to, it's a spending account for Jesus Christ. And I, I look to empty it out every single month to give glory to God. Then after you've given the percentage, you start giving more. Maybe you go from 1% to 2% to 10%, from 10% to 11%, whatever you need to do. Trust the Lord in his leading with that. And here's what I don't want you to do with your giving. I'm gonna let you off the hook here for about five seconds. Don't give because you should. Don't give because you should. Give because you believe. Give because you believe. That you believe God's better story for your finances. Give because you believe that your heart is more valuable than anything you have. And if money can be a threat to it, I'm going to give that threat away. Give because you believe that God's going to take care of you no matter what. Give because you believe that God's going to take whatever gift, however great or small, and he's going to use it to bring glory to himself and to help other people and to shine bright light that's going to turn on your light and turn on the lamps in the darkness. Give because you believe he'll bless you. And I don't mean like a prosperity gospel, he's going to give you more money kind of blessing. I mean that you're going to grow spiritually and be shaped more and more into the image of Christ, who, by the way, was a poor man. Give based on faith that God will do something through your generosity and that he'll turn on the lights. So after we've locked the safe and we've turned on the lights, the last thing we need to do before we head out is we need to turn on the alarm. We need to turn on the alarm. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Look, you can't serve God and money. You can't serve two masters because it fractures us. It makes us divided, right? Now, you might sit there and be, say to yourself, well, Travis, I serve two masters all the time. Have you seen 21st century America? We're always serving multiple masters. That's what we do. We go to work. Then we take care of our family. Then we do stuff at the church. I'm a part of a nonprofit. I'm on a rec soccer team. On and on and on and on. I have multiple masters all the time. The way that you're looking at serve in this passage is the way that uh, we look at waiters at a restaurant. Waiters at a restaurant, they don't have just one table or two tables. They have multiple tables, right? And they serve those tables. And they take care of them adequately. And that may work for your soccer team. That may work for your job. That may work for your family. But Jesus is saying that doesn't work in one place. Money. Because the word that means serve here isn't serve. It's enslave. It's to be a slave. Money has this thing. Our treasure has this thing that it does to our hearts. That other masters don't really do. That other loves that we have don't really do. It enslaves us. And we start to look at the world around us through a lens of numbers. How much is that worth? Can I buy it? How much is that valued at? That's not worth my investment in it. I didn't get anything out of that. It changes your entire outlook on life. 
And when you begin to be consumed by money, it does something to your relationship with your Lord, with your Redeemer. You begin to hate him. Now, it might not look like hate at first. In fact, you might even be able to fake it for a real long time. But you'll hate him by doing subtle things like ignoring him, by working from sunup to sundown and being like, I don't have any time for you, Lord, I'm sorry. You'll hate him by withholding from him, not just your finances. You'll withhold other things from him, your confession, your love, your trust. You'll hate him by slaving for every promotion that's offered, by every business deal, thinking if I can just get through this, if I can just get through that. You'll hate him by cutting corners in your contracts, seeking after just a little bit more profit. You'll hate him by working for immoral institutions and companies because they pay well or they have good benefits. You'll hate him by ignoring your family and your church under the auspices of providing for them. You see the irony here? The irony is that we have elaborate alarm systems in our homes, in our banks, in any place that secures things, in museums that are valuable. And we have these alarm systems to protect our investment, to protect our money. But in God's economy, money isn't protected by an alarm system. Money is the alarm system. When we're a generous people, it's an indication that God is working in our heart. It's an indication that we're loving him, that we're trusting him, that we're acting in faith. When we're stingy, when we're greedy, when we're embracing the bad eye, something's gone wrong. There's a break, there's a breach. Our heart's under attack and the alarm bell's going off. And if you think I'm wrong, look at Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector, he's a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. He's a wee little man. And he robbed and he stole from people legally. And he has one interaction with Jesus and he says, I am going to give away half of what I own to the poor and if I cheated anybody out of anything else, I'm gonna give it back to him four times more. And Jesus says what? Today salvation has come to this house. Why? Did, did Zacchaeus get saved because he gave his money away? No, he indicated he was saved by his generosity. And if money is one master and God is the other, Zacchaeus shows that he has a new master by giving away the old one. Zacchaeus shows he has a new boss by giving away the one that enslaved him before. He's like, I don't need money anymore. I got a better master now. And just like a sophisticated alarm system in a museum or a bank, you can find out where your problem is by looking at specifics. If I break into a museum after hours, not all the alarms go off. It's a localized alarm that tells security where the problem is. And in the same way, in our lives, I can look at my budget, I can look at my finances, I can look at my spending, and I can see exactly where my heart is, what the problem is. Maybe you're addicted to shopping. Maybe you're addicted to it because it makes you feel good. Maybe you're insecure. And so you run there when things are hard and stressful. Maybe you're addicted to hoarding. You're afraid that one day something bad's gonna happen and you're gonna wanna hold on to everything you can. And so you save and you save and you save. Maybe you're addicted to investing because you like the rush of the deal. Maybe you're just addicted to laziness and you don't bother with your finances at all because you think to yourself, well, I've got enough, I'm fine. Somebody else takes care of it for me. Our money tells us where our heart is, what it's obsessed with and what's captured it. And oftentimes we wind up ignoring the alarm bells going off. The theft of our heart often winds up being an inside job. Winds up being an inside job because we turn the alarm off. We're like a corrupt security guard in a, in a heist movie, right? 
who for a little cut of what's in the vault will turn off the alarm to let the thieves in and take what we have. And so lust, pride, jealousy, envy all break in and take our heart from us and we sell it so that we can get a new pair of shoes, we can get a new car and have a bigger business and be a Fortune 500 company, whatever it is that we're after. And we find out after time that that little slice of the pie that we took actually wound up costing us a lot more. And Jesus reminds us of this in Mark 8, 36. What does he say? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? You realize later, after you've made that deal, after you've turned the alarm off, maybe it's years later, that the material goods you got out of that deal left you with a full wallet and an empty vault where your heart used to be. Remember, whatever it is that you truly value, that's where your heart's gonna go and you can't help it. I don't care how, willpower, how much willpower you have, how strong you are as a person, that's what's gonna happen because it's the way you're made. Because you were made to have your heart go after God. So keep the alarm turned on. And here's how you keep the alarm turned off. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 to 24. 5, 15 to 24. And I want you to see what it is that Paul tells us to do. And I want you to see the italicized words on the screen. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. In the Louvre, they don't ever turn the alarm off. You know why? Because there's some really valuable pieces of art in there. They don't just be like, well, it's after nine, let's go ahead and turn the alarm off and save some money. No, they leave it on all the time. Why do we think we can turn the alarm off sometimes in our own heart? Why do we think we can let things slide? Our heart is so precious, so valuable, worth everything in the Louvre. Jesus didn't die for anything in the Louvre. He died for your heart. It's valuable and precious, so we can't turn the alarm off. Our whole life needs to be about pursuing the kingdom with singular focus. So how do you do this? It has to become a spiritual discipline, a spiritual exercise. Finances have to be a spiritual discipline in your life. So before you budget, you pray and you seek what the Lord would have you do with your money. And by doing that, you keep the alarm turned on. Before you make a purchase, cars, houses, clothes, vacations, you seek God's wisdom and his will for your life. And by doing that, you keep the alarm turned on. You limit yourself. You don't live above your means. You don't even live to your means. You live beneath your means so there's a margin for you to give and to be generous And by doing that, you keep the alarm turned on. You seek out opportunities to be generous. You don't wait for people to come to you. You hunt them down so that you can shower them with blessing. Just like your God hunted you down and showered you with blessing. And by doing that, we keep the alarm turned on. And if we're in a job or a career that rewards greed and having bad eyes, we leave that job and we keep the alarm turned on. If I can summarize what I'm telling you today, it's this. Whatever you're being offered, whatever money can get for you, it is not worth your heart. Give it to the Lord. And if you've already done it once, in a justification, salvation kind of way, keep giving it to him. 
Be like, Lord, I want to stray. I want to go away. I know I do. Lock up my heart in your vault. Lock it up in your safe, Lord Jesus. Turn the lamp on of my life. Let me be generous. Let me pour into the lives of other people. Let me pour into my church. And Lord God, please help me keep the alarm on so that when I know when I'm straying, when I know I'm pursuing things that are leading my heart away from you, when I'm letting in thieves to steal my heart, remind me and turn it off. Turn off that desire in me and pursue to pursue you. Last week, we, we did a palms up, palms down uh, sort of thing to handle anxiety and stress. And what we did was we, we, we put our palms down. It's a meditation exercise. We put our palms down. And we, we had them down and we gave God things in our lives, things that we were worried about. Today we're going to do it again with finances. We're going to give him our finances. We're going to lay our palms down and we're going to turn them up and ask for God to give us things. So pray with me, please. We'll do this. So put your palms down. Lord God, we come before you and we give to you our finances, the things that we hold on to, the things that our money, our treasure, our valuables, Maybe it's not money that we value, but maybe it's something else that money gets for us. Maybe it's, it's love of a sports team, or maybe it's, it's um, love of musical instruments, or love of anything that, that we might be bought on. Lord God, I pray that you would take those things and, and not take them away from us, Lord, but use them to give you glory. So Lord, as we turn our palms up, first I pray for those that are hurting today that need something, need money need finances, I pray that you would give it to us. Pray that you'd pour that out of their lives to help them meet their needs and they might see that you were a great God. And for those of us who have enough, who have more than enough, God, I pray that you would give us wisdom in our finances, that you would show us what it is that you want us to do with them and use them to bring glory to yourself. Lord God, we love you and we thank you for all the ways that you've blessed us, the ways that you've taken care of us financially and the ways that you've taken care of us spiritually. Help us to lock the safe, to turn on the lights, and to keep the alarm turned on. We love you. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. Come and join us as we seek to follow Jesus every day. We meet every Sunday at 9.15 a.m. for our small group Bible studies called Connect Groups and 10.45 a.m. for worship. We hope to see you soon at Park City's Baptist Church.